everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Recorded live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dallas Death Discussion for October 3rd, 2016. Hard to believe. Uh, first nine months of the year is gone. If you got pregnant on the 1st of January, you should have a little one by now. Uh, it's really hard to believe that we've gone through nine months, but we have. It is another Monday night, and uh, I'm tired, just so everybody knows. Uh, I've been fighting a problem with Firefox for almost a week, and I made a lot of progress, got it working, but yet on my regular computer that I use, I couldn't get into it tonight. It, uh, I got into part of it, but it wouldn't let me open up the call board. So there's obviously some more issues that need to be resolved. But it's um, then I had another problem uh, with things that uh, that got partially solved today, but it didn't get fully solved, and I'm going to have to deal with the rest of that tomorrow. So it's been an extremely frustrating day, um, very tiring day, very tiring few days because I've been fighting this since last week. But uh, Anyway, I want to welcome everybody, and, and of course, i got to tell everybody right from the get-go that what you hear on this uh, call is not legal advice. We don't know what legal advice is because we're not attorneys. When I say we, I'm talking about the moderators and even the other people that talk on this call. Uh, we are not lawyers. We don't have bar cards. If you want legal advice, you have to go find somebody that has a bar card because I guess that gives them a license to dispense it, kind of like, you know, you got to have a liquor license to own a bar. I used to own a bar. I know about that. And you got to have dram insurance and everything. And I would never do that again in 100 years. But I wouldn't be a lawyer in a 1,000 years. So anyway, uh, what you hear here is discussion. That's why it's called Dallas Debt Discussion. It's discussion of the consumer protection statutes, the use of the courts, the proper use of the courts, I should say so that you can stand up for your rights and not have to depend on others that might take your money and sell you down the tube, which is unfortunately what an awful lot of attorneys will do. So uh, the bottom line is we're here to help people. This is about education. We're always here on Monday nights. Haven't missed one uh, in over seven years. And I may possibly have an interesting situation about a month from right now because uh, – uh, my daughter's birthday is November 13th, which is a Sunday. And she lives in the Midwest, <clears throat> and uh, she is my youngest daughter. She will be 30. She has Down syndrome, and I haven't seen her in a long time, and she really, really, really wants me to come up for her birthday. So I think very possibly I'm going to be up there, and I was doing some checking on uh, plane tickets, and... There's no kind of affordable fare coming back on Monday, but there is on Tuesday. <clears throat> so what it might end up being, depending on how things go, if I do go up there, which I really want to, uh, that I might end up doing my call from a remote location 
up there. So uh, we'll just have to see. But that's <clears throat> that's four weeks out. That's not of concern at the at the moment. And uh, luckily, I've got a, a new cell phone that has extraordinary battery life. Uh, I, I got a new phone. I only paid about what six bucks for it, and uh, the battery life on it is amazing. And no, it's not a track phone. It's one that works on uh, uh, AT and T. Uh, and no, I think it was more than six bucks. It, it was very, very, very inexpensive. But uh, bottom line is, uh, if I happen to need to be remote, I can do that and uh, we'll just take it from there. But uh, for the new people that may be on the call, the way TalkShoe works is you are unmuted when you come on. That means that if you, you know, go slam a door or turn on a TV loud or clank dishes in the kitchen or anywhere else for that matter, we're going to hear you unless you mute yourself, either using the button on your phone or star six. I prefer that you use star six so that I can see that you're muted on the board. But if you're making noise, I can see you on the board, and I will mute you. I just ask everybody to do that. I don't have uh, things set to mute everybody when they come on the call, and that's by design. I appreciate everybody's cooperation. We want to keep these calls as quiet as we can for the simple reason that there are literally hundreds of people that uh, listen to these calls later and download them. Uh, this has been going on for many years. I've got thousands and th tens of thousands of downloads of calls uh, that we've done over the years. So please uh, cooperate with us. Uh, if you want to ask a question after we get done with good news, all you have to do is hit uh, star 8, and that will put you in the queue. Raise your hand. I call on people in the order that they've raised their hand. Please have yourself muted using star 6 before you do star eight, though, uh, because that saves me a step. So uh, with all that said, as uh, most people know that have been on this call, we usually start with good news. And good news can be any number of things. It can be a, a good outcome recently, uh, you know, a settlement that you've uh, managed to uh, get taken care of with somebody in a controversy. Uh, maybe you got a check and... Uh, uh, settlement of things. Uh, good news can come in a lot of forms, but uh, if anybody has any good news, all you have to do is speak up. You do not have to hit star eight. So right now the floor is open for good news to anybody that has any. Well, I told you last week I got a handwritten letter from someone who wasn't one of our members mm -hmm. because that person um, had a, a conversation with one of our members in another state. It was uh, Sam in Illinois. And, um, of course, he's in Oklahoma City. And uh, on Friday, uh, he drove to Georgia and showed up on my porch. And we had just a wonderful all-day visit. And uh, several conversations over the phone since. He was on his way to Florida. Um, but it's it's just amazing. I, I've said it before. I, I had begun feeling like 
the old lady in uh, Stephen King's The Stand. She's on her porch in Nebraska, and she's sitting in her rocking chair playing a guitar, and all these people are dreaming about her and and just showing up on her porch. And uh, I said the only difference between me and that old lady is I, I actually do play a guitar, but she's an old black lady and I'm an old white lady. So <laughs> I'm starting to feel like I'm in a Stephen King movie, but it's awesome. And I love being able to meet any of you out there. And anybody's always welcome to show up on my porch. And it, it was just a great experience, a great day. And thank you again, Sam, for reaching out and sharing what we do um, with others. Well, that's great. Yeah, I know you had a good time. You and I uh, had quite a discussion about that, and it's uh, it's really good that he was able to uh, to come and visit with you. It's uh, we shared a lot of information. He has a credit repair business in Oklahoma City. Uh huh. <laughs> and it just. <clears throat> getting into learning, you know, all about the litigation end of it. And it was uh, the recent ruling in the 11th that just fired him up. (laughs) So make no mistake, everybody, we are making a difference. Oh, yes. Yeah, we definitely are making a difference. And that's that's being seen in a a number of different ways. Well, I didn't hear anybody else uh, pop up with any good news. The uh, only good news I have is uh, I managed to settle another case last week. And uh, that's something that's off the books. Uh, we, uh, we got a settlement agreement done. I put a notice of settlement into the court, and the uh, court issued an order saying that everything's got to be done by October 28th or they're going to call a hearing and have somebody on the carpet as to who's screwing around. <laughs> so, we know uh, who that is. Yeah, it wouldn't be me, that's for sure. So, um, anyway, we'll we'll have to uh, wait and see what uh, what happens there. You know, when the settlement funds are received, then I'll be filing my uh, uh, motion to uh, uh, dismiss with prejudice, and that'll take care of that. But uh, on the uh, flip side of that, uh, on Friday, I did send out a uh, <clears throat> notice of intent to sue to another company that uh, called me, and uh, we'll see whether they want to uh, <clears throat> settle matters or whether they want to decide to litigate. And uh, I decided to take uh, that and deal with it uh, because it's a smaller number of calls. I thought I would deal with that before the uh, situation with uh, portfolio recovery because that's going to be one of my bigger uh, cases again because that's, uh, I believe, 69 calls. So uh, that's going to be a more major situation. So we'll find out and see what happens on that. So <clears throat> that's the good news I have. It's just uh, we move along. Another thing settled. I'm uh, not going to talk about the money, but let's just say that I'm perfectly happy. So um, it's just be some more uh, goodies that the uh, debt collection industry pays for on my end of things, which uh, 
I've become rather fond of. I, I really kind of like those things. So, uh, With that said, I'm going to ask one more time if anybody has any good news. If you do, just go ahead and bring it up and let's hear it. Did you get that doc I sent you earlier? Um, uh, speaking of my cell phone, oh, hang on here a second. Unbelievable. I'm not sure who it is, but um, you. Let's see. You sent me a doc on what? I've I've had so much stuff going on, on today. It's on like I'm brain dead. On professional litigants. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. And I I did get a, a chance to just glance at that just a little bit about the definition. I, yeah, that I was kind of interesting. It's very interesting, and there's some awesome case law in there. I went through and highlighted it because I talked to Tally later in the day, and, and then I sent it to her after I highlighted it. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. Yeah, that uh, that was uh, very interesting information because, you know, we've had some people that have, uh, you know, said, oh, well, you know. You guys are just professional. Well, we're, we were them. trying to figure out what the hell does that mean, right? Isn't that what you do, right, <laughs> the attorneys? Um, it's like double standards, you know. And uh, then I came across that once again, Googling for something else. Yeah, you never know what you're going to stumble on when you're out there searching yeah. for things. But it is a very good, very good article. And, uh, you know, I will agree that there's a very broad claim, and very often, especially when the other side has no defense for their violations and their actions, to instead launch an ad hominem attack on the plaintiff, on the opposition. And it's character assassination, and, and that's what they try, and try to label you as a vexatious litigant or uh, litigious or... Uh, litigious a, consumer. Uh, yeah, professional uh, litigator, you know, and this sort of thing. Well, it turns out that, you know, yes, there are people who meet that definition. And under the law, um, what one of the prongs is for meeting that definition is if you are not just filing suits simply because you're in it for the money and turning it into a cottage cottage industry, a business, you, you know, you uh, deliberately uh, trap people into uh, litigation. But the prong for that is that the professional litigant sets it up to bring the harm on themselves. Now, if you stop and think about that, when you're dealing with, uh, and and that's under all kinds of statutes, not just what we do, but when you're dealing with the FDCPA or the FCRA, um, you can't even do that. You you can't bring those violations on yourself. You can't cause them to put erroneous information into your credit report. You can't cause them 
to refuse to investigate your dispute and therefore continue to put erroneous information in your credit report. You can't cause them to pull your credit report without a permissible purpose, whether you are the furnisher or the CRA, you can't cause that harm upon yourself. So you don't meet the prong of that definition. Same is true with the FDCPA. You cannot cause a rogue collector to send you um, letters and, and dunning, et cetera, and, 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 uh, and do things that are in violation with the FDCPA. Those things, those decisions are solely made by them and, and are never facilitated or encouraged by the consumer. So, you know, that was really revealing. And I have to say I did, it's, it's, it's 47 pages, that PDF, but I really enjoyed reading it and highlighting it. I'll, I'll bet uh, you I'll, did. <laughs> yeah, I'll, because, you know, I've been through it. You've been through it. Uh, all of us have. And you just, you know, your head's kind of spinning when they're, when they're attacking your character and accusing you of, of all this wrongdoing. And you're like, what are you talking about? That's what Congress intended in the first place. But you have to realize they, there, there really are some people who fit that definition. But I would say, and I don't know if you'd agree with me, Dave, but I bet you will. I would say that the number... Well, what is that? hang on a second. We've got somebody that's talking and making noise. I'm trying to see them. They quit now, and I'm not seeing them on the board. Okay, I would say that the number of rogue statute abusers on on the uh, furnishers and collectors' side far exceeds any number of professional litigants in this arena anywhere in the country. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I'll share that doc out with everybody on Wednesday, though, because it's a good read, and everybody should have it. And there's some good case law in there. <coughs> oh, good. Well, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I just went, uh, while you were going over that, I went and... Uh, uh, I wasn't a debt collector that called my cell phone for one thing. The other thing was I, I looked up and uh, uh, the company I sent the notice of intent to sue to did receive it today. So we'll find out whether they want to talk or whether they want to uh, play. Well, whether they want to go the route that the other company did and, and do things the hard way. You know, I mean, that's just the way it works. All right. Anybody else got any good news for us? One more time. There's some good news here. Well, we'll take it. We always take good news. Yeah. Well, I had, uh, sent a notice of pending lawsuit out about three weeks ago and finally filed a lawsuit last week. And uh, 
just today I got a, a response from the attorney, the, the compliance department, not the compliance department, but the uh, chief counsel or whoever, and uh, they give me a, uh, an offer today of 500 bucks for for an inquiry, and um, uh, I did include a state law claim, but uh, yeah, I just uh, I got a, an offer today, just today. So I, I oh, just wanted good. to share that. That's just on one credit pull. One credit pull, yeah. Yeah. And, I, and you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but if it were me, I'd take it. Take it. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm kind of still deciding because I alleged another state law claim, which which is relevant to the case, and um, I kind of want to email back and maybe settle for almost a thousand. Um, you know what I, I've done in the past is split the difference. Yeah, because my first offer was fifteen. Uh, they they gave the their first offer was. Okay, well, we'll remove it from your credit report. And then I <laughs> said, well, I said this, uh, you know, this isn't about my credit report. This is about your your client's uh, collection efforts. And uh, I said, since I have to take so many trips to the post office, you know, I said I'll settle for fifteen hundred. Then that's when I came back with five. So I'm thinking of just going, seeing if I could meet them halfway, or seeing if they'll meet me halfway. I'm not sure. I think it's worth a shot, though. I mean, yeah. well, it's called negotiation, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's how bad do they want to avoid the cost of a uh, a lawsuit and having to deal with it? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna see what they say. No rush here, but yeah. Well, that is good news, though. You get at least you got an offer. The the biggest thing is you're talking, and like I've said so many times. If you're not talking to the other side, how can you possibly reach a settlement? Right. Yep. And yep. and you know, if your goal your goal is what? Your goal it's is to get a check, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Okay. Well, they can't read your mind, so you've got to communicate with them to see if you can reach a settlement because if you can reach a settlement, then you reach your goal. Yeah, and the good thing process. Yeah, the good thing about this uh, communication is the attorney's been really he's been really polite so far. I had some nasty ones before. Um this guy's hasn't argued. He just he sounded like he doesn't even want the case or from his client at least. He he uh he left a voicemail and he it was uh, I felt really bad because <laughs> he just sounded like he was sad and I was like, Okay. Uh, let me get back to him, and that's when we started the negotiation. But yeah, well, that's, you know, yeah, that's the thing. You know, you you run into different personalities on attorneys. Um, there's some of them that are very easy to talk to and and uh, pretty reasonable and stuff. And then of course you've got people on the other side. You know, they're like a bull in a china shop. They, uh, you know, they figure you're just some bozo, dumb pro se, and they they want to treat you like you're an idiot and uh, uh, you know, but it, it, it runs the gamut, and you never know what you're going to get every time that you start dealing with somebody. So when you get the good ones like this, uh, you know, it, it's nice to, it's enjoyable to deal with somebody that's halfway pleasant and you know not real antagonistic and stuff because that does happen. 
Right. Yeah, and I kind of just want to keep negotiating since he's so friendly. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, we'll see where that goes. Find out tomorrow or uh, maybe the rest of the week. It drags out that long. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's it. I'll just sit back okay. and enjoy it. Well, that's good. Thank you. Appreciate the good news. Glad to hear yeah. you got things uh, cooking there. <clears throat> yeah. All right. Who else has got some good news for us? I've had a few more people join the call here. All right, nobody else with any good news? Then I guess we're going to go to taking questions. And if you've got questions, all you have to do is hit star 8. That'll put you in the queue, and uh, we'll take your questions and hopefully be able to answer those and uh, uh, get you some information that you need. And we're going to go to, oh, uh, ah, man, Idaho. Jeez, everybody uh, keeps jumping in here. We've got a bunch of people jump on tonight. Go ahead, Idaho. You're unmuted. Okay. Um, I had called before regarding um, an attorney who was just working overtime and then took me to a collection mm-hmm. bureau to sue me, and you remember talking to me. Right. I remember the, the basic yeah. situation. Mm-hmm. So I did file my um, answer with my affirmative defenses and hoped he would just walk away after that. But today I received in the mail... Um, a notice of status conference. And this is from the Collection Bureau as the plaintiff. So I need to be going to, I guess, a status conference October 18th. And it says, um, you are hereby notified that a status conference is set for October 18th before the judge. A scheduling order under Idaho rules of civil procedure may issue following this conference. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering what I do next. <laughs> well, what what's going to happen basically there? Uh, you're you're going to go in, and the judge is probably going to say, "Well, okay, you know, they filed the complaint, and you answered. Um, you know, uh, what do you plan on doing as far as discovery goes? Uh, do you plan on doing any depositions of anybody?" Uh, stuff like that, you know, he's going to want to get a, a he or she uh, mm-hmm. is going to want to get a, an idea of where each party is and, you know, where, you know, where you stand on uh, what you're going to need to do to uh, have the case move forward and then uh, see if, you know, we probably have a little bit of discussion or very possibly the court might just say, well, okay, I'm going to allow, you know, 120 days for discovery and, uh, and uh, the discovery deadline is going to be this and uh, the deadline for such and such is going to be this and we're going to have a pretrial conference, you know, on, uh, uh, let's say, you know, December 14th or, you know, January or whatever like that. And uh, it's basically going to be to uh, set a scheduling order so that you have a a, a basic outline of how the case is going to move forward. So when you go there, you want to be thinking in terms of, okay, what kind of discovery are you going to be wanting to do? Are you going to want to depose anybody? Are you going to want to... uh, you know, get any uh, do requests for production of documents, uh, things like that. And, you know, because chances are the court's going to want to know one of the basic things is going to be, well, you know, how much discovery do you anticipate doing and, and what discovery are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
It's it's nothing. I mean, it, it's nothing that's uh, coming down the pike that is like, ooh, man, it, this thing's getting close. The court's going to make a decision. Well, the court hasn't got any evidence to make any decision on yet. This this is just to help get things going. Okay, and um, I guess if this guy never really had a contract with me, and I put down as one of my affirmative defenses that the statute of frauds, because I, any work that's going to take longer than a year is supposed to be... Uh, no, I don't think you want to go anything with with fraud. Okay. Did um, you ever did you ever look, and I know we discussed this, did you ever look up and see whether it's required that uh, attorneys have a written agreement with their clients? Because I know um, a, a number of places it is required. But I don't know if it is. I there. called the Idaho State Bar, and they said it's not required. But they said any work that's taking longer than a year is supposed to have a contract under that statute of fraud. You know, anything that they think is going to take a year, which many divorces do, should have a contract. And, and I read yours took places. yours obviously took yeah. longer, much longer than a year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, okay. Uh, so I was thinking that. You know, with him just working and just trying to earn money because he has no other work. <laughs> well, you, you got to be foot. careful what you say, making allegations like that, because no, no, I know. didn't say that. Yeah, okay. But, um, um, what you know, you you say that the bar association said if it's going to be more than a year, is there uh, is there a rule that says that, like a rules of professional conduct? Um, and I, if you don't know, I would suggest calling them back and asking, you know, say, well, I, you know, I called and I talked to you about the situation, so on and so forth. And uh, I was mm-hmm. told that uh, anything more than a year that they should have a, uh, there should be a written contract. Is there mm-hmm. a, uh, something in the rules of professional conduct or anywhere else that states that? They that's, When I called them and asked them that, they said there is no rule that states that, but they highly recommend it because um, okay. of, you know, it's, it's, it's like bad pra- practice not to do that because of the statute saying, you know, if you do any work that's over a year, you should have a contract. And, well, um, what statute says if you do any work over a year, you should have a contract? What says that? It's the Idaho, uh, let's see. Idaho Code 9-505, certain agreements are to be in writing. Uh, In the following cases, the agreement is invalid unless the same or some note or memorandum thereof be in writing and subscribed by the party charged or by his agent. Evidence, therefore, of the agreement cannot be received without the writing or secondary evidence of its contents. Well, there you got your thing to point to right there. Yeah. I mean, that for me, that just falls right there. And all the research I did showed that no verbal, any kind of verbal understanding will not hold water because of that one. So you can't say, oh, I thought, I thought, I thought. You know, and we even had a pattern of money goes in the account and then he earns it. And he knew on that last trial that that was it. And right. he just kept working away. Right, right. Well, that's where he's going to have a real problem. Yes. So, because um, you established a pattern, and then when it went over a year, there was still no written contract. You informed him, I have no more money, uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, that's it. You've, you've, mm-hmm. milked, you've bled me dry. I have nothing. So yeah. we're done. But yet he decided on, on his own volition to carry forward and do things. Uh, yeah. 
against your wishes and uh, uh, you know in spite of the fact that you informed him you you had no uh, no further money to pay him yeah what kind of discovery or depositions would you say I would be going for well I, I want I'm going to I'm going to ask you, given the facts in your case, what would you need to ask for? See, you you can ask for something, and if it's something that they would have to have uh, to have their, you know, to legitimize their case, their claims. Mm-hmm. And but if you ask for it, on. well, hang on, hang on a second, hear me out, and and you ask for it, and they say they don't have it, wouldn't that kind of put a dent in their claims? That's their own yeah. admission? Like if you ask for the contract, any contra- written contract uh, yeah. for services, you know, you're going to ask for that. Now, you know, see, people always have a tendency to think that they got to ask for something that they know the other party should have because they want to get it. Well, sometimes mm-hmm. the fact that the other party says they don't have anything can be yes. far more, uh, you know, beneficial to you, and that's one of those cases right there. If you ask for a copy of, of the written contract between mm-hmm. uh, the parties, then he's going to have to say there is no written contract. Right. Okay. Or he's going to have to come up with a, a fake document. Okay. Would they really do that and come up with a fake document? Oh, believe me, lawyers would do anything. Oh my goodness. I'm not saying he's going to. Don't, but what I'm saying to you is, don't rule out that possibility entirely. Okay. He could. Okay. He, you know, he could put something on letterhead. You know, this is. Uh, you know, to uh, uh, memorialize our our, uh, our conversation that I'm going to do this and you're going to pay that and, and, and until, you know, you put it in writing that I'm not going to do any more or anything like that. Well, of course, he's not going to be able to get your signature on that. And if he produces yeah. something like that uh, and you know it's it's false, then you'd have to, you know, do your document examination and, and prove it's false. Uh, a forged document okay. and all that, but I mean that's that's getting into possibilities. Yeah. But right. the the whole point is, you know, every case is different for discovery. So what you you've got to think about, okay, what do I ask for that if he provides it, it's going to be beneficial to me proving my case. Okay, what mm-hmm. if I ask for something that I know that has to be there, uh, you know, that that isn't and they can't prove it, isn't that going to help my case? So there, you always got to look at both sides of the coin when you do discovery. Okay. Um, you know, ask for specific uh, uh, information. Um, one of my interrogatories uh, might be, um, please identify uh, all witnesses to uh, the uh alleged agreement between plaintiff and, and defendant mm-hmm. for services. Identify all witnesses? Uh, please identify all witnesses to the agreement. Okay, now why would I why would I uh 
want to ask that? Because he'll have none. Well, when he comes back and says there are none, then it's just between you and that. That already establishes that it's just you and him. Your word against uh-huh. his, right? Yep. Okay. You see, you see what the you you you, you formulate your questions. You got to think about what question can I ask, and what is the result? What are the two sides to the coin? Whether I get an answer or whether I don't get an answer. If they say they don't have something, how does that benefit me or them? And if they do have something, how does it benefit them or me? You got. You should always look at both sides of the coin. That's why discovery is is more difficult, especially for a lot of people, because they they you know they're they're kind of looking for oh well you know what questions should I ask? Well, good grief, you know the questions you'd ask uh, regarding a TCPA situation are completely different than if you were dealing with FCRA, right? Right, and I was thinking of some kind of question saying if you're billing someone and it's been six months and they haven't paid you, do you I mean, after the first, second, or third. No, month, no, you, you don't ever get into asking anything like that. That's okay. Because you're asking them to, you know, just uh, speculate about something. No. Okay. You you okay. have to ask questions very specific to facts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time. Okay. So it, it's going to take some time to develop the types of things. You've got to give it a lot of thought as to what you want. Now, you know, have you gone through John's uh, webinars on discovery in the website? No, I need to do that. Yes, you do. Absolutely. John did a, a series of webinars on discovery. They're very good. And that's why they're in there. Okay. So look at the webinars on discovery. Right. And I guess, so what else, the depositions, what what are they going to want to know about that um, as far as scope? Well, that? well I, I, think the, I think the logical thing would be, uh, well, uh, Ms. Plaintiff or Ms. Defendant, um, do you plan on uh, taking any depositions? Because here again, uh, the court is just going to try and find out, okay, what all is involved in this case? What, you know... What kind of stuff are you going to have for uh, roughly for a defense? What are you going to be looking at discovery-wise as a defense? And what's he going to want to be doing, uh, you know, as far as discovery or anything else uh, to press his case forward? That's, you know, it's just so the court can get an idea of how extensive the case is going to be. In other words, are there, is there going to be a huge knock uh, knockdown drag-out battle or is this something that's probably going to be fairly simple and not take a whole lot mm-hmm. of time? Because if it's going to be you know, very extensive stuff, a court would have a tendency to probably lengthen the discovery period uh, as compared to something that's relatively simple where there's not a whole lot of you know, uh, facts, uh, questions that can come into uh, to play where you know, they, the court doesn't need to grant you know, six or eight months for discovery. Right, so deposition being an out-of-court uh, oral testimony of a witness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's see, I need to get something to the order of, you know, that he knew that that was borrowed money for the trial and that, that I need to get the court uh, records of the judge assigning 
all of post you know all the stuff after the trial all that work to the uh to my ex-husband's attorney yeah that was his well, assignment well but what's that got to do with the deposition um nothing i kind of wandered <laughs> okay well uh, yeah you asked a question about deposition so you know yeah. take one thing at a time okay. okay what what would i need to depose anybody and my guess would be you'd probably want to depose him and ask him a whole lot of questions. Well, Depose who? Did, the attorney that's suing you. Okay. Don't you think you'd, you'd want to get him to under oath to uh, yes. answer a bunch of questions? Well, what about yes. this? Uh-huh. What about that? Did you do this? Yeah. Did you do that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, wasn't it a standard uh, standard procedure that uh, the uh, defendant put money into an account and you worked off of that those funds and at such time mm-hmm. as those funds were depleted you notified the uh, defendant that more funds were needed before you uh, uh, did additional work mm-hmm. you know stuff like that get him to admit well yeah that's the way we did things and stuff like that. See, that way you've got sworn testimony that's admissible at trial. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, of okay, course, when you go do the deposition, you know, you'd want to really lay out, the, you know, have your written questions very specific so that you make sure you don't just go in there and have a conversation, just ask a bunch of questions. You have very pointed questions and all of it to to go to all of the specific areas where you'd be able to nail him down where, you know, mm-hmm. he would, uh, okay. uh, is, isn't it, uh, uh, did, did you do such and such and so-and-so? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Or what, what did you do, uh, from, from the inception of doing the work for, uh, the defendant, uh, when did you notify the defendant you uh, needed additional funds put it, uh, mm-hmm. uh, provided for your services? Mm-hmm. And what what threshold uh, was used to determine when you uh, told the defendant you needed more funds? How much uh, generally did did you ask the defendant for each time you asked for funds? Or requested right. funds be deposited in the account, or what? You know, see, these are all the kind of questions you get in there. Mm-hmm. But you know, you, you'd want to um, literally you probably have several hundred questions written before you ever went to the deposition. I sure would. Okay. But again, you got to right. think. You got to think in terms of okay, what do I need to prove that there was no agreement? And that mm-hmm. he he's not entitled to what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Right. And if I was a judge, I would look at it that way too. I would say, well, they had a pattern. They had no contract. The pattern was broken, and he just kept working. <laughs> yeah. Well, the you know? uh, the defendant states uh, uh, in her affidavit or under oath that uh, she informed the attorney at such and such a time when. Uh, he uh, informed the the plaintiff that uh, there were no further funds available, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, oh yeah, 
a question could be: Were you aware that the uh, defendant borrowed money for the last for the the last trial? <laughs> well, it's all of those things. Mm-hmm. But the whole point is, you, you the, the it's a it's a collection tool for documents uh, for information for testimony. So you got to okay. use those various things, whether it's production, interrogatories, admissions. Mm-hmm. You know, admit there was uh, no written contract between plaintiff and defendant for services. How do I word? How do I? What was? How do I? Well, that again? It's, it's, admit this is an admission. Admit mm-hmm. that there was no written contract between plaintiff and defendant for legal mm-hmm. services provided by plaintiff. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So what does he got? To, if there's no written contract, he has to say there's no written contract. He'd have to admit that, wouldn't he? Mm-hmm. Well, see why you ask those kind of things? Mm-hmm. You know, and then, like I said, in interrogatory, you know, uh, you could ask, uh, uh, please identify all witnesses to any verbal agreement between the parties uh for, you know, between plaintiff and defendant for legal services rendered to defendant. Mm-hmm. You'd want to know, okay, if you're saying, well, you got a witness, I want to know who it is so I can depose them too and see what they're going to say. Right. See, these are the kind of questions you got to think about. And I know, you know, most people aren't, you, you, we're not used to thinking this way. You know, we're not used to thinking detective. I know. And it's it's uh, something new. And boy, when I first started getting into discovery, oh, I had a horrible time. I really did. <laughs> I mean, I, that's probably one of the most difficult things that that I had run into, and in all the stuff that we were dealing with mm-hmm. is is trying to deal with that stuff, trying to deal with answering their stuff, understanding how to answer it properly. And uh, you know what you had to answer, what what you can object to, uh, stuff like that. You know, because you mm-hmm. you you want to object when you should, but you don't want to object when you shouldn't be, because then you know, especially in your case, you got a lawyer on the other side. Well, you know, he's going to go crying to the court. Well, you know, Your Honor, I'm an officer of the court, and I know how discovery works, and she's just being. Uh, uh, obstructive here. Yeah. I asked her a question, and she put up this uh, objection. Well, her objection was the the information you asked for was not uh, calculated to produce uh, information admissible at trial. And uh, you uh, you asked about her, uh, you know, the color of her children's hair. Well, what's that got <laughs> to do with your lawsuit? You know. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you see what I mean? I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it, discovery is not easy for most of us, but it can be done. Right. It can be learned. But go go through those webinars that John did. That's why he did them, just to really try and help people. He explains a lot of things so that you can start understanding the 
the logic okay. and, and the thinking patterns in that. And, and John is very good because John's background is a, is a, a strategist. Okay. He, he's a he's a master at that stuff. So you know, take advantage of uh, the the time and effort that he put into those webinars and uh, gain okay. as much knowledge as you can out of those. So what will be the steps then? Um, we'll have a scheduling order and then... Um... Well, you'll, st you'll be moving forward with, you know, what discovery you're going to be doing and, you know, okay. doing admissions, interrogatories, production of documents, you know, depositions, mm -hmm. stuff like that. To gathering, it's the evidence gathering phase of uh, whether okay. you're, uh, you know, heading toward trial. I mean, assume that you're going to go to trial. Okay. And will that be like a jury trial then? Uh, if you you should have stated uh, you demand a, uh, a trial by jury okay. when you answer. Okay, um, the next page has a bunch of stuff. That, because in their questioning, they, they, they tell you in lieu of this status conference, because they want you to just move ahead. If all parties agree on all matters set forth on the attached stipulation for scheduling and planning, the stipulation may be completed, signed, and filed before the date set set for a status conference. Well, but that's that's just if you're that's if you're just agreeing to how the case is going to move forward. Yes. Yeah. But you know, like, number you know, two says. Go ahead. Go ahead. If number two says parties estimate the case will take. You know, X, you know, just has an open right. X amount of days to try. And then it says it could be tried as a court trial, 12-person jury, or six-person jury. I think I'd want it to be a jury trial, not a court trial. Oh, you absolutely want a jury trial. Yeah. So how do I move it to being a jury trial? You, uh, you actually should have done that, put that in when you answered. Oh. Okay. And I think if you, I think the others would agree with me if you didn't do that, uh, you want to do an amended answer amended. and include that. You need to get that because if you don't if you don't put it in there, you usually can't go back and get it. Oh, and then they can do whatever they want. Well, no, you, you the, the judge decides it. You don't get a jury trial. That's what that boils down right, to. Right. Right. Okay. So. Yeah. It's not too late to do an amended answer now. I think I think what I would do rather than a amended answer is a corrected answer. Okay, and send the same thing, but say it, it just I I'd send what I I sent. I'd just retype it, another copy of the same thing. Uh, a, a defendant uh, demands a, a, a trial by a trial by jury of all issues. And a trial by jury of all issues. Right. Okay, and it's not too late to do that. Well, the terminology that I'm going to suggest you do is don't put in an amended, put in a corrected. When did okay. you file your When did you file your answer? When did I file it? Uh, that was on September 16th. Ooh. Oh, that's been quite a while. Yeah, I still think corrected is better than amended, don't you, though, John? Absolutely, because if you amended, you yeah. add something that you didn't have before. If you if you make a mistake, a mistake can, be, can corrected. be corrected. The mistake you made was if they ask you, 
oh, I was in a hurry and I thought I printed the right document, but I didn't print the final document. It was an inadvertent I, error. I inadvertently right. forgot that that was on the other one. Typically, okay. you want to do a correction within a day or two or, you know, seven days at most. In your instance, it can't hurt to try. So you need no explanation if it was called a, you know, defend, defendant's answer in affirmative defenses. It would be defendant's corrected answer in affirmative defenses. And then at the appropriate point, which is usually at the conclusion of it all, just, mm -hmm. you know, defendant demands a jury trial on all issues uh, trial by jury on all issues yeah yep okay um on of all issues or on all issues of all issues yeah okay. you really need to dig into the webinars because you know there's also this is over credit card no no this is this is where a lawyer was handling a divorce and she ran out of money to pay him, and she was always paying in advance, and the lawyer just took it upon himself and just kept on doing work, 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 and now he's trying to uh, sock her for a big chunk of money of work that wasn't authorized. He's, just he's, being, a a he's being a debt collector? He sent it to a debt collector, and then the debt no. collectors got an attorney on board. But it's funny because this latest letter is back again just from the collection bureau as a Well, you know, you can sue the collection bureau. You can sue the attorney the collection bureau hires, because even if the even if the the lawyer causing the problem is a valid original creditor, so to speak, uh, the the debt collector he hired and the attorney the debt collector hires are debt collectors, and right. you can sue them. And in fact, you might have them pay his legal fees. He might enjoy seeing that happen. You never know. Yeah, okay. we talked about that before. You're going to want to, you know, uh, get going on getting ready to file a federal lawsuit against those guys. And just so okay. you don't feel bad, uh, once upon a time I sued a law firm and I couldn't get my discovery any other way, so I deposed the owner of the firm in a video deposition, Deuces Tecum. And uh, when that was all over and we arrived at a settlement because of me squeezing them into that, the owner of the video deposition firm wanted to talk to him because there were a bunch of other lawyers that hadn't paid him for using his deposition services, his video services. And the lawyer that I had sued said to him, well, you know, lawyers are the worst people about paying their bills. <laughs> really? He said that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that that's his business. That's yeah, his business. Tells you something like, about that profession, I, doesn't it? I think they yeah. think they're above it all. Mm -hmm. Lawyers above the law. Yeah. Yeah. Ask a judge about that. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying I just want to get this clear. You said that this collection bureau and then the collection bureau hiring an attorney, that in itself is not not legal right there. Well, wait a second. It's legal. We didn't say it wasn't legal. Yeah. You have you have remedies. Are you a member of the website? Yes. Yes. Oh, this is so. This is such basic stuff. Have you sent the collection agent and the collection lawyer? Have you sent them debt validation letters? 
Yes, I sent that right away when I got the first collection notice from the I sent it again when they sent the letter with the attorney. At that point, I sent it to the collection bureau, the attorney, and then the other attorney that's part of the attorney's uh, group, I would say, his group, his professional you mean, group. You mean which one, the one that caused the lawsuit or the one that's suing you? Oh. Um, well, the one that the well, one that caused it, the, your divorce attorney, is an original creditor, so you, you can't claim anything from him under FDCPA. But the right, other right. one, the other ones you can. Now that doesn't mean if it's you know, um, you know, ruby, gold, silver, and green attorneys at law on the letterhead. You don't sue ruby, gold, silver, and green. You only sue the guy that signed the letter. Mm-hmm. You only sue the right. you only sue well the firm and the guy. Yeah, you su- you you sue the law firm itself, but then just the one attorney that touched the tar baby. You can't just sue right. a name. They they have to touch it, it in some way. If okay, they so file the lawsuit on you and the filings are in the collection action, and a different attorney crops up si- signing a filing in the collection action, you send that attorney a debt validation letter, and you can sue that attorney too. But since you've requested validation, if they haven't provided you with original account level documentation, such as your retainer agreement with that attorney, and you might want to look at the agreement you have with the attorney, what happens if you terminate him? That's just it. There is no written agreement, John. Yeah. Oh. All well, he did, yeah. I sat down with John and I. He just said thirty five hundred, you know, retainer to start, and I was I was surprised we didn't find anything because I think he thought, you know, this is how it'll work. I just work while the money's there, you know. It's account stated. <laughs> so that's easy. That's easy because once you ran out of money and it couldn't do it anymore, you told him you you told just like you had no written agreement you also told him you didn't need his, you couldn't afford his services anymore if he continued to do that he was being Mr. Nice Guy and now he's suing you if you told him yes. that you didn't you didn't need his services that was the end of it uh-huh. yep that's that's what you can say that's what you can say in court but in the meantime you've got this money sitting there waiting for you to get it out of these other folks and if you feel the guy did you any good pay him when you get the money if I feel what guy did me any good? The the divorce attorney. If he didn't do you any good, screw him. No, yeah, he, he screwed her around. He jerked her around big time. He didn't. Oh, well then, at all. then for, forget him. Just go yeah. after these other people. Make some money off the whole thing. But you have <laughs> to you have to defend you have to defend your you have to defend your state action. And what I was going to tell you when I got off on this tangent was in the discovery. Uh, uh, in in the beating credit card section, okay, mm-hmm. not only do mm-hmm. I have stuff on how to deal with discovery that you propound and discovery that you have to answer of theirs and how to do depositions and things like that, but there are motions to dismiss, and you can do a motion to dismiss on this. You can do oh, a really? motion to dismiss can do a motion to dismiss there's no there there's nothing they didn't file anything in with the complaint that showed where you were contractually obligated to pay him. And now, how do I, will you restate that? I didn't, they didn't, I'm sorry, they didn't disclose when you anything? When you received the complaint, it's just a complaint. There were no documents attached to it or were there? No. 
Well, you know, normally when you get sued, if it's for breach of contract, the contract has to be attached to the complaint. If And you need to look at your complaint clearly and see what he's suing you for. Is he suing you for breach of contract or account stated theory? If it's account stated, that's more like a verbal agreement, but there's a way to defeat an account stated, an account stated uh, collection action. If it's, if, it's a, if it's a breach of contract action and the party hasn't filed a signed contract with the complaint, you can move to dismiss it because they failed, failed to state a claim by not attaching the document you're being sued over. Okay. Okay, they failed to state a claim. Well, then that's the one you got, you got it on because there was the summons and the complaint and there was no contract attached. But you need to, need to look at the complaint and see if he's suing you. It will, you know, somewhere in there it's going to tell you the state statute that he's suing you under. And you can Google that very easily, you know, if it's New Jersey statute, you know, 77... 52.32, you put that in Google and see what comes up. If it says account stated theory, it's on a verbal account. If it's a breach of contract, it's on a written document. So you handle each one differently. If you handle yeah, it correctly, you're going to command the judge's attention. Yeah, this, um, yeah, it doesn't say anything about contract. It just says that this, this is a tricky in the, in the complaints, complaint number seven that defendant has failed to pay and there is now due and owing the sum of 14400 with interest thereon at the rate of 12% from October 6th until paid. So they haven't ever said anything, you know, the complaint, in the complaint but it, about but any does kind it of say, contract. Does it say that this, 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 uh, this action arises from? Does it say anything like that earlier? Um, no, like not, you know, as if they were, you mean, like quoting a statute or something? No, arises. It has to give an explanation of what happened. Oh, okay. Right. It just says, uh, it just says the above-named plaintiff, by and through its undersigned counsel, uh, and for cause of action against the above-named defendant, complains and alleges as follows. You know, and then number one. Go ahead. You know, it just says I'm a. Read, read is what John's saying. Okay, so Roman numeral one, plaintiff is an Idaho corporation licensed to do business with the state of Idaho with its principal place of business located in Nampa, Idaho. Uh, Number two, defendant is a resident of Ada County. Number three, that each account herein referred to has been duly assigned to plaintiff. Number four, that demand for payment was made more than 10 days prior to the commencement of this action and that an amount at least equal to 95% of the amount due has not been tendered to plaintiff. Number five, that as of October 6, 2015, defendant owes to plaintiff Dominic Law Office 14,400 plus interest see attached, see attached hereto marked as Exhibit A and by this reference made two parts they're part of. Okay, now stop right there. You said there wasn't anything attached to it. Oh, you know they must have sent some accounting, but there was no. Uh, there's no contract. Well, well, no. No, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You, you, you're saying they must have sent some accounting. Was there something attached to it? And if so, what exactly was it? A. That would be just some accounting. 
but it's only well, no, for no, a- no, no, no. You, you're you are not being detailed enough. You're you're just kind yeah. of flipping things. Oh well, some accounting. No, exactly, precisely. What did they send you? Law okay, is I, very yeah, precise I, I, and exact. It's not general. Yeah, I, I had forgotten that they did send with this till I read this again. But it just it it shows um, like amount put down and then amounts paid and what they did um, up until you know, where it shows where there was no money coming in and they just show it keep keeping um a running account of what they say they kept doing. Well, did it did it show that there was always a positive balance that was being dwindled down or yes. that there was a uh a, a negative balance and then you would pay it off and negative balance you'd pay it yeah. off. Which way did it go? It, it was always a positive amount. And if it went under, it only went by like a couple hundred under. They'd request more money, and then I'd put more money in, and then they, you know, show an accounting of how they got to bill. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, see, that's they're they're putting good evidence in there to screw themselves right there. Yep. Go back to your complaint and start off where you left off. Okay. Then for six, uh, that both oral and written demand has been made upon defendant for payment. And then number seven, that defendant has failed to pay and there is now due and owing the sum of 14400 with interest thereon at the rate of 12% from October 6, 2015 until paid. That's and it? That's, yeah. Well, okay. My first comment <laughs> is, uh, where did you agree to pay 12% interest? That was going to be my first question. If, if you quit, if you owed money, because in order to demand interest, um, there has to be a written agreement that states that that's that's the amount it is. They're, they've just pulled they in in today's world where you get maybe a half of a percent in the bank. How do they get twelve percent interest? Okay, I, that, this is just you, a way of jacking me around. No, 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 no. And 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 number two. In in the complaint, did it say anywhere at the end that they want attorney's fees? The oh, yes. At the very end, um, after the Roman numeral 7, it says claim for attorney's fees. That plaintiff has been required to retain the services of an attorney to institute and prosecute this action, and for that purpose has retained the law office of Mark Clark, licensed in practice of the state of Idaho, has been obligated to pay a reasonable attorney's fee and cost, which plaintiff is entitled to recover from the defendant pursuant to Idaho Code 12-120 and other applicable statutes of Idaho law. Yeah, well, where did you go look at that statute, and what? where's the contract that says that you agree to uh, pay interest, especially at 12% on any amounts due? That, where's the contract? You need, to, you need to look at the statute and see what that says, or if they're just blowing smoke. In your instance... There might be no reason that you have to pay attorney's fees on a recovery and without an express agreement stating that you're going to pay the interest and you're going to pay attorney's fees in a recovery, they're not entitled to claim them. Okay. You know, if, if, you, if you ran a business and you were doing documents and extending credit to people, you would want to make sure that you were able to recoup attorney's fees in the event the people failed to pl- pay that's why you have a written agreement without a written right. agreement 
you have trouble even collecting, you know, on an IOU on a slip of paper. And that's the, that's the way it works. So yeah. there, there's a reason why you can move and say that, you know, the move to dismiss because the, you know, the defendants haven't, uh, the plaintiff hasn't provided um, account level documentation, original contract between the parties to show uh, one uh, that interest would be due to that attorney's fees would be due uh, three uh, venue for resolution waiver of arbitration, you know, all this other horseshit that you can throw in there. And um, because the judge will go, well, yeah, that's reasonable. You know, yes, you need a contract for, you know, to cover all those issues. Where is that contract? You know, not mm-hmm. with, notwithstanding, you know, uh, the opposing party, um, uh, amending their complaint with the uh, the aforementioned contract that defendant demands, the court should dismiss this action for failure to state a claim uh, for failure to state a pl- claim upon which relief can be granted and and um, and other uh, and other, what is it, Dave? Other relief, miscellaneous, other, uh, yeah. Um, oh God, I'm tired tonight. <laughs> yeah. In other words, you're asking the court to, you know, do you any a further favor relief? To... The the just uh, the court deems just and proper. Yeah, and uh, you know, so even though you've answered, unless you've admitted to stuff in your answer now. I don't know, how did you answer your complaint? Did you just go down there and, you know, feel heartfelt that you had to answer it a certain way? Or did you go down it as a hard ass and deny as much stuff as possible? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, the number one said, you know, plaintiff, the plaintiff is an Idaho corporation. So I said, uh, I am without enough information to admit or deny that. I don't know if they are. Correct. Right. Two is that, you know, the defendant is a resident of Ada, Ada County. And yes, defendant admits the allegation. Number three, that each account here and after referred to has been duly assigned to the plaintiff. I put down I am without enough information because how can it be assigned to me? I don't. I just put I don't. I am without enough information to. Well, that's and that's fine because they didn't provide any evidence of an, any kind of assignment of anything, did they? Yeah. So I just left it that way. And then number four. Not said, not only that. Let me make one comment. When they say that the account was assigned by account, what is what do they mean? What is the definition of an account? There you go. Right. Yeah, it was so vague. That's what I thought. And they're trying to assign any word. When I see the word assigned, I go, no, 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 I'm not assigned anything. Well, wait a second. Here's something. El- here's something else. They're saying that the account was assigned to the debt collector. Oh, right. And now they're saying that each account here and after referred to has been duly assigned to the plaintiff. Well, who's and, who, and who is actually the plaintiff in this suit? Me. No, you're the defendant. I mean, defendant. Sorry. Oh, well, right. That each account here and after referred to has been du- I'm sorry. My brain got foggy. Okay. That each account here and after referred to has been duly assigned to the plaintiff. Who is the plaintiff specifically? The plaintiff of the collection bureau. Uh, they sold the, the lawyer sold the account to a debt collector. The guy bought the guy bought a useless piece of paper from you know that he's attempting to collect on something that he right. bought a debt in default. 
okay? But you can even... Well, no, I'm... <laughs> for those of us that have been around for four or five years, right. no, no. It, it's just, it's so glaringly obvious. Obvious, this guy, yeah. It was $14,000. He probably got 200 bucks at most. Really? Maybe maybe 300 or maybe they played golf and gambled over it or something. I don't know. But, yeah. you, know it's hard. you mean, you and, mean and, my attorney got $200? The lawyer writes off a $14,000 loss. He sells the defaulted account for two or 300 bucks to cover drinks in the ground of golf. Oh, and oh, then you just said something, you said something right there that hit my brain. Okay. What? Did you file a $14,000 loss in your taxes to my attorney? Well, yeah, but yeah. that doesn't that doesn't matter. That doesn't yeah, matter. Because he's he's not a party to it now. Right. Okay. You're being sued by a you're being sued by a debt buyer. Who and can't prove up the debt. A random gambler. <laughs> right. It's, and, it's and, just and, like you know, Midland. It, it's no different than Midland, exactly. Well and now wait a second. And, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to interject something here. You guys are talking like it's absolutely without question that they bought it. It did it didn't say it was sold to, it said it was assigned to. It could have been assigned on a contingency basis for collection. Yeah, That's but to be then determined. The plaintiff, the plaintiff wouldn't be the collector. It would be the lawyer and they would be uh, oh, that's right. That's right. The plaintiff would have to be the original creditor. Exactly. Right. So, so John is right. That's right. Yep. Yep. He cleared that up. So when they say Clear the account here and after referred to has been duly assigned to the plaintiff. <laughs> well, they. What does duly assigned mean? Where exactly. is the assignment? Where to assign an account? You have to have an agreement to. To claim interest and to claim attorney's fees, you have to have an agreement. Where is the contract? Where is exactly. the contractual agreement? Probably the, it's in the same place that the uh, contract is that uh, he had with her. Yeah, yeah. And here, when hold on. Non-existent. This is a very important phrase, and you better remember it. You need to go, force them to fork over account-level documentation authenticating that there ever was a debt. They have sent me a lot of accounting stuff. No, you, you know, don't I mean, understand. No, 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 no. Listen to me. I okay. didn't say accounting stuff. I said account level documentation. What is that? That is a contract with your signature on it an agreement of some sort with your signature on it where you agreed, in other words, that contract that doesn't exist and never did? Yeah. All right? They've got to produce it. They've got to be able to prove up that there ever was a debt for them to buy in the first place. Okay, I get what you're saying. Was there ever a debt to buy in the first place? But that's the language you need to use, account-level documentation. Okay. I think a lot of people get that confused, and they just think of numbers instead of a contract. No. Account-level documentation is not accounting stuff. 
Yeah, because this guy has bought a debt without being able to prove that it ever even existed. Well, all debt buyers do that. They buy a, a they buy a spreadsheet usually. You know who knows? You know that lawyer could have sold off a whole bunch of his losses if that's the way he does business anyway for the mm-hmm. year. But they buy a spreadsheet with fragmented account data on it: name, address, social security number, telephone number. Uh, the balance that's claimed to be due, and maybe some statements, credit card statements, or in this case, some accounting stuff attached to it, you know. But they never get a copy of the original uh, application or contract or agreement signed by the consumer that would establish that there was ever a legitimate account or debt to begin with. These buyers yeah. don't get this crap. Right. I guess but one I thing, they can't sell an account. You can't sell a contract and, you know, bind an, a person. Like, okay, if I've got right. a contract with Dave for something. And you can't sell I, a contract and make it binding to someone else. Right, and I I can't sell that to John, and now Dave is bound to John? No, it doesn't work that way. I can yeah. sell John the right to collect on it, if he can. Uh-huh. But I can't sell that contract. I can't sell that account. I can sell evidence of a debt. Right. Okay? Right. I get it. Wow, that makes it a whole different game, doesn't it, guys? Yeah, and I just have to figure out how to deal with these phonies because it's so phony. Well, they all are. <laughs> well, what what you're going to want to be working on is getting a federal lawsuit. Exactly. Oh, you've got a good one. Yeah, you've got Did a I great really? federal. Oh, yeah. What well, yeah. Terry, should I contact that attorney you use, Terry? Well, you're talking to her. I don't have one <laughs> at the moment. Um, the, uh, the only time I've used an attorney, uh, Craig came in to uh, help me with the appeal because that's, oh, a to- that's a totally, you know, different universe there, the appellate court. And um, this is a very important case. But now... You know, he's not licensed to practice in Georgia, and it's really impractical for him to even think about, you know, coming to Georgia to do the trial. Well, Terry, um, she is in Idaho, which isn't very far from where Craig is. Well, she can call him, you know, because if he can't or doesn't want to, yeah, he, he actually lives in Utah. Okay. But his practice is in Vegas. And, uh-huh. you know, that isn't that far from you. I, I know. I used to live there, too. Um, so just, uh, I'll give you the number. His okay. office His office number in Las Vegas is Craig Perry, and that is 702-374-3163. Did you say 3163? Yeah. Three one six three. Okay, and Craig Perry. Perry, you know P E R R Y. Oh, okay. 
So you know, there, and if he and if he can't or isn't licensed to to practice in Idaho, he may be able to hook you up with someone else. Okay. You know, there's oh. one other thing she needs to do, and that's pull all three of your credit reports because more than likely that debt collector pulled your credit report. And if and they're a buyer, they they, they, they may could have be put reporting it. a trade line. Yeah. Now the regular debt collectors. They don't put trade lines in because they can't. They don't have an account. They don't have the account. So, and they can't use a, an original creditor's account number in order to furnish information to the credit reporting agencies. And that's why you don't see traditional third-party oh. debt collectors in your credit report. If there's a trade line by a collector, it's a buyer, and they will have their yeah. own account number on it. Different than okay, what the attorney had. So yeah. In, in one of these notices, it said, or one of the letters, it said that um, this has been reported to a credit company, but it's uh-huh. been reported, but it's been reported as disputed, like to make me feel. Good. Well, who cares? It, it yeah, you you damn right, it's disputed. <laughs> you know, but that doesn't let them off the hook. Now, when mm-hmm. you get your credit reports. You really need to go through the seminars I did on what lies in your credit report, <coughs> excuse me, and cleaning up your credit. I did mm-hmm. those, uh, the first one, November of last year, and the second one started in February of this year. They're on the website because that will mm-hmm. take you step-by-step step through the, the proper uh, steps you have to take to file a, a correct dispute of yeah, whatever the they same. put in there. I did use a company at one point right after my divorce called Lexington Law, and I think they were trying to do some of the stuff you're talking about, but I think they got some of the things taken off. But yeah, but listen to me carefully here. If you have somebody else do it, a lawyer, a credit repair company, anybody, if you have anybody else but you file that consumer uh, dispute directly with the CRAs, you forfeit any private right of action to yep. any violations, and you can't sue them. It's okay. not hard to do. It is not okay. difficult. It is very easy. There are example letters. <clears throat> I, I provided documents, case law, example letters, step-by-step, exactly what to do and how to do it in those websites. Now, would I be just doing the credit bureau and who? I mean, would I just be No, no, because your violations haven't happened yet. That's why you need to go through those webinars so that you will know how to recognize it when the violations occur after you dispute. Yes, okay. credit reporting agencies can be on the hook if they fail to investigate your dispute properly and take it off of there, right? Okay. Then they're on the hook. That's under a different section of the FCRA. And the furnisher, if they fail to uh, properly investigate, reasonably investigate, and take the appropriate action, then they are on the hook for the violation. But you don't know right. that until you take the proper steps to file the dispute. 
Right. And okay. the other way to look at this is, you know, right now you potentially have an FDCPA claim against the debt collector and an FDCPA claim against the collection law firm and an FDCPA claim against the collection lawyer. So that's 3000 bucks right there. And when you go to the debt collector and, and they want to settle for $1,000, you say, yeah, but uh, here's, here's where you pulled my credit report twice. So that's $1,000 for each pull, and you reported a trade line for three months, so that's another $3,000. So I'm willing to settle with you right now. Uh, I have 6000 in statutory damages, so I'll take five if you want me not to file a lawsuit or uh, for the okay. other items. You know, but you're not going to enter into a... You're not going to enter into a settlement agreement to waive all claims for the FCRA violations. You're only going to file an FC, FDCPA claim, claim to start with. And you can okay. use that to leverage to get more money out of them. And no one we're going to have to get going here to the other callers. We spent okay. a lot of time here, and we got a bunch of people Sorry, Dave, I got carried away. No, no, that's fine. This has okay. been good, and it's been educational for everybody. But, you know, we've got five other people that have got their hands up here, so um, we only got a half hour left, so we want to make sure and we thank you very much for your time and your very You're, you're welcome. Stuff. And, of course, you know, there's calls three nights a week, which you know about. So you yeah. got your homework, but you uh, – uh, you've got a, a real good situation. You've, you, uh, if you handle things properly, you got this guy by the short hairs, and you should come out of this with a chunk of money in your pocket. Okay, great. Okay. All right, we're going to go to Texas. That's a good place. Hey, how's it going, guys? Pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. Uh question I have is regarding um, 26... A1 initial disclosures. Um, uh, this is the first one I'm doing here. So what, what information exactly, or maybe not exactly, um, uh, what, yeah, what information do I need to Did you try uh, Googling provide? it? Did, did you yeah, try I've been Googling doing it? Some, yeah. I've been doing some of that yeah, but too, but are you are you following the form available on your court's website? Uh no. I haven't no Terry to answer the question. No, I I, I have not. Oh, there, you wanna, there may be one. <laughs> Go ahead, John. You wanna get that because there's basically four areas of thing four areas of items that need to be uh disclosed on a twenty six A one. 26A1s are not required are, are are required not to be filed into the court, but you have to serve right. it upon the opposing party. It's best to serve it by certified return receipt mail, so you can prove later that you did give it. Okay. Generally, the the 26A1 report ha, ha, disclosure has to be exchanged within 14 days of the 26F conference, unless it's agreed upon between the parties at a for a separate date. Uh, that's very that's very important going forward. Or if now one thing to go along with that. Date. One one thing to go along with that that's important. When you serve it to the other party, like John says, you don't file it with a court. You serve right, it to the right, other yes. party, but you have to put a file a notice into the court that you have served it to the other party. You're letting the court know that it's been served on the other party. Right. You don't have to do that filing, but it's good. It's good to put that on the record. 
Also, uh, where you'll pro- where you'll probably find that on your court's website, um, most of the district courts have a pro se packet uh, available okay. on the website for, okay. for your court under forms and all that, and that's probably where you're going to find the uh, form for the 26 <laughs> A1s and the 26 F and and all of that stuff. Now, a lot of the district courts automatically mail you that packet if you're a pro se, but some of them don't, and you have to go to the website and get it. So just to give you perspective, in, in, in FRCP 26A, there's three different disclosures it discusses. A1 is the uh, just after your 26F conference. A2 is for expert witness disclosures. If you're going to do Daubert's motions, it's very important for you know to have the expert witness disclosures. And A3 are pre-trial disclosures uh, of the witness list and your exhibits that you're going to take to trial. The 26A1 covers four areas. The first area is uh, listing individuals likely to have discoverable information supporting your claim. Or if it was the other side and you were a defendant, it would be supporting the the affirmative defenses that the party has. So you have to list, you know, yourself, the party that you're suing, and anyone else that knows about it that might have to have information. The second section are documents that may be used um, or are relevant to the case. So for you, it would be documents that the plaintiff may use to support his claim. And whatever you have... Um, like if it was debt collection letters or phone calls or whatever it is, depending on the type of case you have, you need to list those there. This is where you disclose what information you have so that the other party can can attempt to discover it. That's why the disclosure is important. The third area is very important. That's where you list your damages. And if you set that up properly, Early on, you know, you always want to have settlement discussions, but some of us like to send a settlement demand letter because the other side's like, well, you know, I want to settle, but, you know, your complaint doesn't say what you want. So your settlement demand letter is where you lay that out, that, you know, if it was an FDCPA action, the plaintiff seeks for for, um, $1,000 statutory damage per defendant for each violation of the Fair Debt Collection Practice Act pursuant to 1692K, or the plaintiff seeks other such and further relief is maybe just improper under 15 U.S.C. 1692K. Um, if you have a state action, you can go off after that. You can also put in there that you seek your fees and costs, including attorney fees under 1692K, in case you choose to hire an attorney. You have that there. You set it up front. So that's where you list your damages. If you have actual or punitive damages, you don't have to give an actual dollar amount because that Punitive damages would be uh, set by the jury, and actual damages you have to justify and estimate yourself, and you wouldn't do that till later on. Okay, right. the fourth er- the fourth area is insurance. Now you're not going to have anything to put in there, uh, right. but you might. But you might write as of this date this information has not been provided or disclosed by the defendant because it's incumbent on the defendant really to provide you with information about any insurance policies they have, which might cover the liability that's arisen under this action mm-hmm. under in an insurance policy for liability. If you're a covered party, 
you have to you have to notify your insurer within a period of time, which is usually three to five days of a, of a documented claim, and a lawsuit is a, is a documented claim for liability. So mm-hmm. the defendants don't like to give up that information because then their insurance rates will go higher. Number one, number two, a savvy plaintiff might contact the insurance company directly and try to make a settlement with the insurance company outside of the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, defendants want that happening because their costs for their cost of insurance will go up. Insurance is specifically discoverable. There's a lot of case law out there on that. So, so. To answer your question, your 26A1 dis, uh, disclosure, you make the following disclosures. You know, individuals that have discoverable information to support plaintiff's claim, documents plaintiff may use to support his claim, the estimate of damages, and insurance. That's it. It's very simple. Okay. And um, there's, there's a webinar a- on that website. Say it again, John. There is a webinar on this on the website. You know where? <laughs> you know, I think it's probably the taking their money section. I think that's where I think that's where our webmaster put it. Um, and while we're on the subject, did you prior to this file your Rule Seven Point One disclosure? Yes. You did, and did the other yeah. did the other yeah. party provide theirs? Okay, good. Well, you're doing yeah. good. If the other party fails to provide you with the 26A1 disclosure within the time allowable, which if you didn't agree to another time is 14 days, uh, then you need to send them an email saying, "Hey, I didn't receive it. I was wondering where it was." Send it, you know, return receipt if you can, or just send it. But then you've documented the fact that you didn't receive it. You might follow up then a week or two later with a letter, just a simple letter that you send that says, I have not received this, and I was wondering if you're going to send it. You yeah. can compel they did. it. I, yeah, they did, John. They did. They, they, they did send it. I haven't sent mine yet. I actually had overlooked it, and I'm like, okay, so I need to get this. I've done well, the, you know, discovery. You need to get an ASAP because I'll tell you something. I just learned that I don't have to wait all the way to pre-trial to um, get uh, to put in a motion to block their ability to use any items that they didn't disclose. You know, if a party fails to disclose on a 26A1, then you can force the court to block their ability to use any information they failed to disclose. You can do it through a motion in limine. There's a couple different ways to do it. So it's really important you get yours done and over to them quick. Right. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I think what I'm going to do, too, is I'm going to follow up with email and just ask for a few more days so I can finish putting this all together and get my information sent over. Because I want to, I w- I want to get my head around exactly what all I need to conclude. Because I've answered doesn't discovery, have, I've sent over a bunch of, huh? Right. The 26A1 doesn't have to be a lot, and you can supplement it. You know, it's, right. you know, you're supposed to supplement it seasonally, meaning when the information comes in, you're supposed right. to supplement right. it. But you just need to get it done. Did they ask you where yours was? Yeah, they sent the email. Well, they had asked about discovery, which I, I've sent that off. They, that's in the mail, certified, sent to them. So that's on its way. Um uh, I, and they did ask about the 26F initial disclosure. So 
uh, and I'm, I'm working on putting that together now. So I'm anticipating having ready to go out about a weekend. Reply back to them and say, say, thank you for bringing it to, you know, to my attention. It was an error. It was, it was my, it, it was an error on my part. Uh, would you agree to a three day extension? you know, from today. And, and if you've put that out there in writing, at least you're like being, you're not hiding and you're asking, you're asking them to play nice in the sandbox. Right. Yeah. And then they can right. make issue of it later. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, so you said it's uh, taking, taking the money section, the district court, I can go there. I should be able to find a 26A1 and I can't, yep. I think I have it down uh, different components that need to be uh, addressed uh, within the 26A1, uh, initial disclosures. Right. Okay. All right. I appreciate it. Have a good night. All righty. <clears throat> okay. We're going to go to South Carolina. As long as I can get it unmuted here. There we go. Finally. <clears throat> Only took a few tries. South Hello. Carolina, you're unmuted. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yep. All right, great. Okay, um, got a question. Um, if a notice of intent was sent back in 2000. Notice of intent of what? Uh, to, to foreclose, I'm sorry. <clears throat> it was sent out in 2013, um, and I didn't make the payments um, to bring it current at the deadline time, but it still kept receiving payments up until last year when I stopped. Well, no, wait a minute. I, I'm confused already. Okay. <laughs> they right. sent they sent a notice of acceleration. Is, yeah, are you talking of, a notice of acceleration? Yes, notice of acceleration. That's, yeah, that's okay, notice of acceleration in 2013 or 12? 2013. Okay, all right. And, and you were obviously behind? At that time, yes. Right. Were you still making payments or you had stopped? Uh, no, I, I missed a month. I, mean, I actually missed two months. Then they sent a notice of acceleration. Then I continued making regular payments, but I never brought it current at that time. Okay. But they continued taking the payments all the way up until last year, and then they went on file foreclosure last year. Okay. So my question is, do they need? Do they have to send another notice of uh, of tend to accelerate or can they use the one from 2013 no the one from 2013 is is uh live because you never brought a current okay if you had brought a current then you wouldn't have been in arrears and then they they you know really if they want to they'd have to turn around and start it over again right but the fact That's that you never brought it current well okay so they okay. they can operate on that one that they they issued in thirteen. Okay. Now, well, obviously it's going to be um, denied that it was that I received it because they never they don't have no proof they sent it. Did you ever have any correspondence with them or anything acknowledging you were behind? Um, outside of the outside of regular statements they send every month, but. But that actually specific letter. But I well, I said correspondence. That means you communicating with them in in some form or fashion, 
indicating or acknowledging that you were in arrears. Was there any of that? No, no, I never, I never acknowledged that. You missed a couple. They sent you that notice, but you just kept making payments, and that went on for a while. And then eventually they said, "Well, let's just hammer this guy and steal his house," and and then they Mm -hmm. started the foreclosure. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's pretty typical. Mm-hmm. So, so your question is now, of course, well, you already asked the, the first part of when if they can they can go off that, but they're gonna have to prove they actually send that letter to me, which I, I know they can't. Well, I don't say that they can't, because what okay. they're gonna do is they're gonna say it's their policies and procedures, and we did such and such and so and so, and by the mailbox rule, the. Uh, the notice was sent, so he got it. Okay. Assume that that's what they're going to do and be able to accomplish. Don't okay. don't hang your hat on you didn't get a notice of acceleration. Okay. But I can't. But I, well, I would say I could use that and make them see how they could respond. try and use yeah. it. <laughs> right. But I, I just kind of explained to you very quickly what how they're going to combat it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very common, right? Okay, and then uh, that that question is answered. Okay, now okay. as far as con- conditions proceedings, conditions there, uh, preceding, section, uh, preceded, uh, section twenty-two, the mortgage yeah, conditions preceding, preceding, preceding. All right, when the loan, when when the uh, servicing was transferred to the new. Uh, the new services took over, and of course the, the substitute complainant comes in and took over the foreclosure action. Do they have to meet those? Do they have to go off the original person who filed a foreclosure? Or do, they have, do they have to actually meet those same proceedings as well? What do you mean, meet the same proceedings? Well, well, I mean, well, if, if if whoever whoever came in. Uh, qualified, met the qualifications, so to speak, to move forward with foreclosure. And then there's a substitution of plaintiff. The the new plaintiff doesn't have to come in and redo what the other plaintiff did. Okay. When you think about it, they should, but Mm -hmm. that's not the way it works. They they don't make them do that. Okay. Now, uh, in addition to that, the notice of this uh, dispute that I sent, they didn't properly, uh, they missed almost like three years of payments. Uh, that was not. And what they uh, sent you, the documentation they sent you? Yeah, they, they sent me like a printout from, because the loan was originated in 2002, and they only sent uh, proof of payments from 2006 and beyond. So it's almost mm-hmm. like four years of payments missing. Okay. Um, and uh, no the attorneys, nor need a lender, have provided that for me. I've already asked them from a notice dispute for all parties, and no one has produced that document to prove those payments. No one has produced a document to what those payments? Uh, they have produced the the proof of those payments, where those payments yeah. happened. Oh, to if, if they, yeah, they they haven't documented the that part of it. They've only documented part of it. They haven't mm-hmm. uh, they haven't validated the debt. 
for so that would be considered not being valid in the debt, right? Well, of course. Mm-hmm. Okay. They can't just send you a piece of paper and say, well, you know, uh, uh, let's see. Well, yeah, you got the loan in 2002. We'll just pick up in 2006 and show, you know, that you may you missed some payments here. Or there. Well, wait a minute. How did, how did you get to that amount in 2006 if the loan started in 2002? Where did it start? How did it get to the figure in 2006? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, you can't either you validate, you provide everything necessary to prove the debt, or you don't. It's very black and white. It's not, well, you know, we're in the neighborhood. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like horseshoes. It, it Close doesn't count. True, true. Okay. Now, I have a question for you. Sure. Have you been working on your federal lawsuit? Uh, yes, that that's um, okay. I've already got that in place right now to do that. To do the All right. Yeah. yeah. That's what you got to do when you got stuff going on like that. But I was trying to figure out a way how to... Um, I know those courts, the state court and the federal is two different ones, so I don't know how to stop them on the state side the, to change the focal action. The, well, the, you, I don't know how long you've been listening to us, but one of the very first things that we tell people is get your federal lawsuit filed because that becomes a defense to their foreclosure. That's that's like a sledgehammer to the the forehead of those guys when they're trying to take your house, and if you wait until after their uh, everything is done in the state court, then you have a problem with, with dealing with res judicata. That's why you have to get your federal lawsuit filed before anything happens in that state court. They are two completely different courts, and what mm-hmm. you're going to bring in that that federal court is your FDCPA violations and you're not going to bring up anything about that in the state don't ever do that in the state court you you just deal with you know well you know they didn't uh, uh they haven't provided the proper assignments they haven't done this they haven't done that and jesse's webinars go over all of that for you mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. to explain yeah. that okay right. but the federal lawsuit is where you bring your fdcpa claims don't ever mention any of that in the state court at all because it, what happens is if you bring it up in the state court and then there's a ruling there, then they're going to say, oh, well, uh, that's already been discussed in the state court case and, and the, uh, uh, the, plaintiff or your, the plaintiff prevailed at state, so uh, it's res judicata and the uh, federal case would be dismissed. I see what you're saying. So you can't wait. you got to get ahead of it. Okay. All right. That answer your questions for you? And um, one other thing too. Now, if uh, what's considered to be proper, proper not verification, proper validation, they have to pro- they have to provide evidence of the debt, not part of the evidence, all of the evidence. You know, if they say, well, okay, well, here's an accounting. Uh, from 2006 all the way to the current date. Well, if you took out the loan in 2006, then it shows everything. Okay, you had this mm-hmm. much that you borrowed, and then you made this payment, and they charged this interest and this payment and this interest, and this fee was tacked on and this and that. But wait a minute. 
when you got stuff when the the inception alone was back in 2002 how do you get to the figure that they start with in 2006 True. you get to just pull that out of the hat and say oh well that's what he owed well no 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 it doesn't work that way you you have to go back to the beginning mm-hmm. otherwise it's not a complete accounting because they could say you owe $246,000 and maybe it's only 245,000 Mm-hmm. Well, aren't they misrepresenting the amount and character of the debt? They are. 1692 E2 violation. <laughs> See where your lawsuit for FDCPA comes in right away? Right, right. Most definitely with that. <coughs> um, I guess the validation of an action, like if, I'm not sure, that that's, this is not mentioned a lot on the, uh, in the webinars, but to validate that the bank, the original lender, uh, had possession of the note at the time of a bank merger. Because the the bank that merged with my original lender, they didn't want to file the foreclosure, the the new bank. But there's no proof that that note was even there at the time of the merger. Well, Jesse goes over all of that stuff. There's got to be assignments. There's got to be assignments. You know, if if your loan originated with A and C is trying to f- uh, foreclose on you, how did it get from A to C? Isn't there a even, B in there somewhere? Even, even in a bank merger situation? You still have to look at all the paperwork. Okay, okay. I, I thought that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very familiar. I just want to show with the bank merger part. He just didn't really went in detail with the merger part. Well, if, if you've got a question on that specific thing, what I'm going to suggest would be good for you to do would be to bring that up on the call tomorrow night. Jesse will be on the call. Okay, okay. And he would uh, he would be able to uh, answer that directly for you. Okay, okay. So call in tomorrow night and ask him that, okay? All right, I will. So I think that's all my questions, sir. Okay, very good. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right, we're going to keep going here. we got three more people here in the queue. We're, we're going to go to Liberty 2. You are unmuted. Go ahead. Hey, guys, uh, this is Jeff. Um, I really don't have a question. I was just going to – I think I almost forgot what I was going to ask or pass on. I just uh, – for Terry, I sent you a message, an email, and uh, I was sharing my membership with somebody – yeah, for a few months, and they can't anymore due to finances and other issues. So I'm just looking for someone else to, if they, you know, wants to share a membership, they can share mine with me. So I just wanted to kind of throw it out for everyone. And uh, like I said, I did email you, but I just forgot, you know, pass it on verbally too. Oh, that's okay. all I need. Yeah, well, anybody who wants to share a membership with Jeff, send me an email at queensongbird at gmail.com, and I will hook you guys up. There you go. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, you're welcome. Thank you. All right, we're going to go out to Oregon. You are unmuted. Go ahead. Hey, guys, this is Kim. Hi, Kim. Hey. So um, I'm I'm kind of stuck. I talked to you guys last Wednesday about the fact that I'm dealing with a new law firm post-judgment. Um, so uh, I'm just not sure what I should ask in a debt validation letter to this, you know, to the firm. Um, you, you, know, you, you don't you don't make different debt validation letters; they're all the same. 
They're all the same, and you don't ask questions. You make demands. Yeah. That's right. Okay. It's not a, de- a, 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 de- a debt question letter. It's a debt validation demand. Okay. And and you do, you don't change things. It's always the same. Okay. Send me an e- send me an email and I'll send you the latest one that we use. Okay, good. Thanks, Terry. And can you You're welcome. can you confirm again your email address is Terry? Or, uh, it's Queen Songbird, all one word, Queen Songbird at gmail dot com. Not Queen Songbird two. Yeah, no. don't you no. don't ever <laughs> send me an email at Queen Songbird too. And and I'm glad you brought that up because I've got a lot of people doing it and I haven't mentioned it for a while. But that particular email address I only go in there once a week to send out half the mass emails because Google limits me. So um you're not gonna get an answer if you send an email to that address. Always use just plain queensongbird at gmail.com. Okay. Okay, good. Cause, uh, I wasn't sure. I sent you that email trying to connect with Sheila. Um, and yeah, it doesn't work to send it to the other one. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought I was sending it to the right one, and I don't know. I might yeah, that's partly my fault. I haven't <laughs> mentioned it for a while. I just forget, you know. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I see, oops, we've got new people in there sending me emails in here, and, and I'm not going to see it for a week, and usually whatever it is they want, it's that issue's gone by the time I get to the email, and I just don't have time to maintain two email addresses, you know. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yep, there's, I have two on it. Yeah, I can't Awful. keep up with the main one. <laughs> right, I know. I'm bad about signing up for things, yep. getting junk mail, so. <laughs> Okay, we've got to keep rolling here because we're okay. almost out of time. Okay, well, thank you, guys. Um, I'll send you that email, Terry. Okay. All righty. Thank okay. you. You're welcome. All right, we're going to go to Debt Be Gone. You are unmuted. Go ahead. Hi, hi. this is Sharon. Hi, Sharon. Hi, I have a couple of questions on my uh, space case. Uh, I, I'm doing a motion to uh, vacate the void judgment. And I have, um, I, I had initially, I don't know whether you remember, I had initially uh, put it in with the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure 60B. And of course, that was the wrong wrong rule. It should have been like an NJ local rule. So I really It should have been what? It should have been a New Jersey local rule. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can't, yeah, you yeah. can't use a federal right. rule, right? Right. So I found that out the hard way. But so I had to write uh, the the new motion with the brief. So it took me like a couple of weeks to write it. Okay. Uh, in the meantime, in, so I was co- wanted to correct the the old one. But in the meantime, uh, the court issued a ruling saying denied, and they said summons and complaint were not responded to. Default entered two years ago. No excusable neglect uh, stated which is not right because I had uh, gone in and said that the summons was not served to me, and so I had vacated the default judgment. So when I'm responding, should I uh, put that in my response? Well, okay, no, no, wait a minute. I want to clarify you. The court made a ruling on your motion to vacate void judgment. Based on the federal rule, yeah, federal rule of civil procedure. Yeah, yeah. And stating that you know there was no problem. Well, 
when you put in your motion to vacate void judgment, did did you have an affidavit with it, sworn testimony, stating that you were never served? Yes. I had I had an affidavit and it and it had been vacated, so that was like one year ago. So that was vacated, but this time when I I now I'm uh, this is a new one I'm doing one, more than a year later, we, asking to vacate the void judgment based on you know a rule which is four four fifty dash one, which is like special circumstances asking to vacate the judgment. So this okay, one that's the New Jersey rule. Yeah. Yes, a New Jersey, but it's also a federal rule. The 60D is the same rule, exactly the same rule. So it, you know, well, it's, a, if if the court, well, the court already ruled on basically that same argument. Uh, yeah, but when I did the first motion, I didn't give a brief. I just read, wrote a small letter saying I have additional new discovery and you know it's also fraud and like a just a one page letter oh well so, no you can't do that obviously right yeah. right so this time when i did it with the correct new jersey rule i gave a long brief and the uh, opposition they haven't like they didn't rule in 10 days they normally the first time they just ruled in 10 days so this time now it's been 30 days and they haven't ruled the op- the uh, opposing party they've put in an opposition and now I'm supposed to put in my reply. So my reply is like due in the next few days. So that's why I had these questions. So you've already got the motion and the other side's argued it and you're just looking for uh, to do your final response before the court. Okay. Right. Right, yeah. So I was wondering whether, like, is this an uh, important point to bring to them that, you know, they, they said that no excuse, excusable neglect stated, so should I tell them that they made a mistake on that, or should I just let it slide? No, excusable neglect would be on your part. Right. Like, they're saying that I didn't state any excusable neglect for not uh, you know, answering the summons the first time. Right. So, and I did state, so should I correct them or should I just let that slide? Well, you, if if that's what they're arguing, they're saying you didn't and, and you did, you have to set the record straight. I mean, that's right. That's, that's, that's your argument. When, sure. when, you're, when you're writing your response brief, you need to specifically only address the additional issues that the defendant brought up in their brief. Right. The other party brought up in their brief. You're not mm-hmm. there to rehash things that you mm-hmm. already uh, had in your first brief. So if, even if you said there was excusable neglect, and they've come mm-hmm. now and they said, you know, well, she didn't say anything about excusable neglect, you'd have something in there that goes like, <clears throat> they're the are they the plaintiff or the defendant in this case? They are the plaintiff. Okay. It, uh, the plaintiff in their op- op- the plaintiff in their opposition brief to defendant's mm-hmm. motion uh, asserts uh, that. Sorry, I just want to stop you there because the plaintiff didn't say anything. It's just the court's ruling. The court's the court's ruling, uh, you know, said that. So, I, so the the uh, the plaintiff. Well, didn't yeah, you're confusing. Yelling. Yeah, you're confusing you're things confusing. here. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let me back up, Sharon. So yep. you put in a motion. Yep. And the other party responded or the court responded? 
I put in I put in a motion with the federal rules for civil procedure, which was the wrong uh, citation. Because it was in state court. In state court, yeah. And I used the federal rule, which was wrong. And so I was supposed to use the New Jersey local rule, and in the New Jersey local local rule also needed me to write a brief. So I took like about three weeks to write up that brief and that motion. In the mean uh, in the meantime, uh, the the, the the court ruled and said that, you know, we are throwing this out because the default judgment, you know, no excusable neglect was stated. So now I'm responding to the new motion that I've put, but I just want to know whether I should clarify to the court that they made a mistake the first time they ruled. No, because you don't, if, if you're telling the court, it depends how you're approaching this. If you're reopening, if they've disposed of the issue and you're reopening the case Mm -hmm. and you file in the same motion that you did before, then, um, you know, they can say, well, you're trying to rehash stuff that we've already ruled on. But Mm -hmm. if you file it anew and make Mm -hmm. sure you you cover all the points that they poured, they pointed out as a deficiency in your mm-hmm. new brief, it should mm-hmm. be good to go because your, your previous brief was filed under rule 60 B. Mm-hmm. And it was just a single sheet of paper. No, listen, listen to that. Listen to me. Your mm-hmm. previous motion was filed mm-hmm. under rule 60 B. Mm-hmm. This motion is completely and separately different because you're filing it under rule, New Jersey rule, whatever. There's okay. a distinct difference because, okay. you know, it depends, you know, if you're driving a Honda Civic or a Honda Accord, right? Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. both Hondas, but right. you have to determine were you driving the Civic or the Accord? Were you making this motion under Federal Rule 60B or under New Jersey Rule this? So there's two different things. They can't mm-hmm. they can't turn around and say, well, you, you brought this up previously because mm-hmm. – well, they can't because the other motion was under 60B. They had good mm-hmm. cause to throw that out. This motion is plagued correctly. You don't need to point out whatever they said before. You're filing. Mm-hmm. A, this is my this is my thought that you're filing a fresh, clean motion and go for okay. it and see what happens. Okay. They, you know, you sometimes you have to you know change axes to cut down a tree. Right, but you know the uh, the, the plaintiff is actually pointing out that out to the court that, you know, I did file a motion for reconsideration that was thrown out, and then I did file this Federal Rule 60B, which was again denied, and now I'm trying again, you know, so they're trying to say that it should be thrown out. It's a frivolous motion, and it should be thrown out, so I need to address that. Okay, Sharon, let me ask you again. So Mm -hmm. in this instance, you filed Mm -hmm. the motion under New Jersey law, and the opposing party put in a response brief, correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Now you're doing your reply brief. You can only address the additional issues that that party has brought up. You can simply state that uh, that you know they that though though the plaintiff complains mm-hmm. uh, uh, of previous motions filed mm-hmm. by the defendant. In this instance, defendant's motion is distinctly separate from and filed under a separate rule. 
in which is, and then state state the rule. And then you've just in an offhanded way said, yeah, there's those other things, but this is different. Mm-hmm. And the court's going to see it as being different. A motion to reconsider is different than a motion to uh, to vacate. And a motion to vacate under federal rule is different than a motion to vacate under state rule. Okay. Okay. And okay. and and if nothing else, your other motion was not properly pled. But mm-hmm. in, you don't need to get caught down in that quagmire. You can just say, yeah, I filed those other motions, but this one's different. It's filed under this rule. Okay. 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 And, and the- does that sound okay, Dave? I think that's about as good as you can get, uh, given the circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> it's so complicated. Okay. And then they brought in also that I filed an FDCPA claim. So my response is, uh, I said, defendant simultaneously filed an FDCPA claim, uh, and plaintiff immediately offered to drop this judgment before FDCPA claim was filed. So, which is proof that plaintiff is clearly aware that they were in some violation. Is that good for me to say or should I add that or no? Where did you where did you file your FDCPA claim in federal court? In federal, yeah. Yeah, then you don't want to mention anything to do with it in state court. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to down. Anyway, no, they, they put it in their in their answer. I know they, they did, but but you so don't I, need to address it. Once you okay. bring in FDCPA, you got a problem. In this instance, oh. they're bringing in FDCPA. I don't think you should address it. Now, okay. did did they really offer to drop yes. this? Yes, I have and a letter why, in writing. And why, didn't, <clears throat> and why yep. didn't they? Because they just offered to drop the judgment, but I wanted uh, you know, damages too. And I had told them that you have I have state violations, FCRA violations, and everything, and they didn't answer me. How much is the damages? How much is the damages? Uh, like FCRA, they were like six pulls, and FDCP, of course, was just one. But there's three uh, three defendants, and then the NJ, uh, the New Jersey UDAP, is like ten thousand dollars. And the New Jersey UDAP has a private right of action for consumers because I yeah. found that in Florida, you know, after litigating under it, that you know they don't have <laughs> they don't have a consumer statute for mm-hmm. it. So make sure about that because you don't want to plead mm-hmm. for something that you're not entitled to. Um, okay. You can always drop that count if you need to. But mm-hmm. how much is the judgment for? The judgment is only three thousand six hundred three six two one. And they're willing to give you cash and drop that? No cash. They said that they had just said that we'll drop the judgment in exchange for the FDCPA well, dropping, loss. I, dropping a judgment and vacating the judgment are two different things. So, you know, I, I don't think I would address se- settlement discussions or anything like that. They make that, but you know they're trying to say you've got a FDCPA action, but that's that's independent from this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they try to, and usually debt collectors try to bring FDCPA into state court so they can get it all disposed of and thrown away mm-hmm. to their benefit. But you keep mm-hmm. you maintaining that in federal court is good leverage. But okay. at the same time, you don't need to be greedy. You know, if you if you get if you, if you can reach a reasonable settlement and get them to agree to vacate the mm-hmm. state judgment, 
prior mm-hmm. to you filing your your um, dismissal with prejudice. And as a part of any any agreement to make sure that anything in your credit report shows paid as agreed. Mm-hmm. Right. Paid as agreed. Okay. I, I don't know whether they're going to come to the table to uh, to settle right now because they seem to be winning, winning everywhere, even though they have fraudulent affidavits on the table. So, so I think that's okay. Settled. You know, mm-hmm. ultimate ultimately. You know what you have at your advantage? Mm-hmm. You're, you're someone, and Jeff always said this, you studied and, and you've done really well. I and missed you've stuck with, And I, I know, it. and we mm-hmm. all do. But, mm-hmm. you know, you studied and and you you also buckled down and you did it. A lot of people don't. And you've gone in there and done the dog fights and you've done well. Mm-hmm. The amount The amount of legal fees that you would have had to pay an attorney to do this Right. Uh-huh. Would be unbelievable, and it's costing right. you a pittance in filing fees, some uh-huh. toner and paper, <laughs> right. you know, maybe some postage. So right. you can uh-huh. really make their lives miserable if uh-huh. they're stupid enough not uh-huh. to settle with you. Okay. Okay. Uh, I hope they do because I'm. I'm. If the if the courts, you know. Start acting on my motion. If they just throw the motion out, then you know. So, and that's my last question. I know there's other people holding. I put something about conspiracy. Like I said, however, for a fraud as blatant and daring as this, it seems like there's a conspiracy at some level to keep this from being brought before the court and ruled upon the merits. Should I even put that there? That conspiracy word? Should I put that there? I don't think I would. I mm-hmm. wouldn't either because you don't want to inflame a judge. No. Nope. If, nope. if, you, if you want to inflame a judge, don't plan on winning, you know, <laughs> unless you can really take him down, you know, like he buys drugs from people in front of your house or something, you know, forget it. But um, I wouldn't go there. If the, if the court, if the court doesn't, uh, if the court rules against you, you can mm-hmm. appeal it again. I mean, it's just going to drive these debt collectors crazy. And ultimately, they're going to face the same thing with the federal FDCPA action. They're going to have to deal with it. The judge is going to go, you know, no matter what whining you do, you have Mm -hmm. a federal FDCPA claim against you in court, Mm -hmm. and you're going to have Mm -hmm. to deal with it. The plaintiff has alleged blah, 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 Mm -hmm. and you can't prove otherwise. (laughs) You know, so they're going to, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Good advice. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. It's not advice. It's not advice. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) just suggestions on on things uh, that you can do. That's right. All right, everybody, it's time to wrap it up for tonight. Thank you, John. Thank you, Terry, for joining me tonight. And uh, we've had a busy call tonight. I mean, there was a lot of good discussion, and uh, we had a bunch of people. You know, we're finally starting to get past the summertime. And I sure hope there's some people out there that are planning ahead, you know, anticipating, well, you know, I may have some stuff coming up ahead. You know, I don't know how solid I am in my job or anything, but uh, uh, I better start learning this stuff and get ahead of the curve instead of being behind the eight ball because sometimes when things go to pot, they can go to pot in a real big hurry. And then you're distracted, and then all of a sudden you're facing a situation and you're not prepared very well for it. So don't put yourself in that position. Get ahead of the game. Study. 
and get in that website, have your nose there. Now, for anybody that didn't take advantage of it, and I did announce it last week, uh, it's no longer a buck for the first month. It's back to $99 to uh, become a member of the website. And like Terry said, she's got somebody that wants to share a membership. That uh, in a deal like that, you can get in there, and uh, it only costs you twenty-four fifty a month. It's uh, uh, forty-nine dollars a month divided by two. So there are ways to uh, save money. But if you don't get in and study, I don't know what to tell you because we can't do it for you. You've got to do it yourselves. You go study in the website, and then when you got the questions, come and ask us on these calls. Tomorrow night is an open call on Blog Talk Radio. That starts at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. And, of course, Wednesday there is a webinar. And uh, I don't even know exactly what the uh, subject matter is. I know somebody's got to be doing something specific on that webinar. I don't know what it is <clears throat> without going to the website. But uh, that's for the members. For the non-members, Wednesday night, of course, or actually for members too, is Terry's call at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. And if you're not on Terry's email list, well, shame on you. Send an email to queensongbird at gmail.com. Do it right now. Say, please put me on the list. Just put that in the subject line. That'll work. <clears throat> but she uh, not only sends out the call reminders, but there's lots of other information she sends all the time. That's why it's important to be on her email list and not just know the number to call in for her call. <clears throat> so there's lots of support, but you've got to do the work. And then, of course, we'll be here next Monday because we're always here on Monday nights. And, again, I want to thank everybody for joining us, especially uh, Terry and John. Hope you guys have a great evening, and more than likely, you'll hear my voice on Blog Talk Radio tomorrow, because uh, unless I get run over by a truck, I'll probably be moderating that call. Hope everybody has a great evening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Good night. Good night, everyone. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.